Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast, the show empowering and educating people on how they can grow, manage, and protect their wealth through real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Bailey Kramer. Hello, and welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Kramer, and today we are joined by our very special guest, Spencer Hilligoss, to talk about vetting sponsors. Spencer is a passive real estate investor, co-sponsor, and former technology leader. His company, Madison Investing, has co-sponsored deals totaling more than 5,000 units, valued at more than $600 million. Spencer invests in syndications as an LP and actively leads Madison Investing alongside his co-founder and wife, Jennifer Morimoto. He is focused on spending time with loved ones and growing Madison Investing by helping passive investors achieve their goals. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Bailey, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to chat again. I know that we only connected kind of a couple months ago, but I'm honored to be on your podcast and talk about this stuff. It's a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Super excited to have you on and share such an important topic in the investing world, no matter what asset class, you know, this is really going to touch on anybody who's going to invest in some time in their life, which is going to be most people. So super excited to jump in. Before we do though, why don't you give a little bit more of a background about yourself and tell the listeners who you are? Yeah, happy to. And I appreciate that. So I live out here in Silicon Valley um, in, in the Bay Area, California. And so I, I grew up here, um, you know, I, so I, I was leaving behind a technology career of 13 years before I got full-time into real estate as a real estate investor. Um, the reason I got into that whole tech world in the first place, though, is because, I mean, it's really the local business, you know, like when you, go, when you grow up here, that's what people jump into when they're young. They think that sounds pretty cool and, and, and exciting to jump into tech companies. So that's what I did. Um, you know, I, I was put on a fast track leadership career um, across five different software companies. A few of those things were like unicorns valued over a billion dollars. But the story that I try to, I, I didn't use to hide it, but I, I try to bring up proactively now after getting nudges from my, uh, from my colleagues and my friends is that I should actually proactively tell people that I did grow up in a real estate household as well. And so, so my dad was a broker. You know, he was a residential broker for 30 years in the peninsula. I mean, which is in the, the Bay Area, California. So he had me work in open houses I mean, as a teenager. You know, I, I was I was learning the ropes and some some basic sense um, out there. I mean, technically, I guess I joined the real estate business at the ripe old age of six, but <laughs> it probably wasn't meaningful until you know at least the teen years. And I didn't want to be doing that stuff, man. I wanted to go hang out with my friends. Um, but that said, I learned a lot. You know, you learn a lot when you observe. Uh, a business from the inside and an entrepreneur and how they operate. And I used to wonder like, why is dad waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning? And here I am waking up around that same time every day to work on stuff for our business and for our livelihood. So, you know, I bring all that stuff up because these days I lead Madison Investing. And what we do very specifically is like we help connect passive investors to invest in these large apartment communities and storage facilities. And these are in places in the South and the Southeast. And it, it, all, it started very organically, Bailey. I mean, like we, we were doing this for ourselves. Like we were just investing for our own family, for our own wealth purposes. Right. Um, and eventually we realized with enough people asking, you know, showing curiosity and asking about them, uh, I realized, huh, like maybe there's, maybe there's a problem here that we could help solve. And the problem is this, is that the market is absolutely flooded with, pitch decks, we call them 
offering memorandums, investment summaries. They have a ton of different names, just a, a bunch of quote unquote deals. There's a right. lot of deals out there, you know, and, and you, I know you, you look at them every day as you're underwriting. I see them across my desk every single day. And there's a bunch of excellent sponsors out there, um, you know, folks with meaningful track records and experience who are hungry to do great work, even if they do have a background. The hard part for the passive investor, um, myself included, when I got started investing passively was like, how the heck do I parse through all this information? Like, how do I get through all the noise and actually understand if I'm looking at two deals side by side and one of them, like they basically look the same. You have operator A, operator B, sorry for the listeners, just to clarify that operator, AKA the sponsor, AKA the active team who's putting this deal together and managing this thing. So you put these two deals next to each other how do you differentiate which one I should do compared to operator A and operator B? The returns look the same and maybe the market's different. And so that, that's where we land in hard to picking our, our, our strategic focus for our business. Like what is the problem we can solve? Well, we can help significantly on, on um, helping the decisioning and the vetting, particularly the vetting with like, who are all these sponsors that are out there? Um, are, are they good actors or as you know as, as some regulatory bodies won't like to call them bad financial actors the people that you don't want to end up in a scenario with like Bernie Madoff um, and are there deals in the business plans that are putting together are feasible and so so we built a co-sponsorship platform in business and, and just to define that briefly for folks it's a very fancy way of simply saying I go and I vet and find and vet these relationships with sponsors experienced folks I get to know them on a personal level I've, met, I've spent significant time FaceTime with them, even pre-COVID, right? Invested in their deal with them. I have put them through an investigative background check that we have already paid for, right? It's worth the investment, all that stuff. And, and, to, and I know today we're gonna go a little bit more in depth about like, what is the actual way that you go and like, what's the stuff you wanna know about these folks? Like what, what's right. the stuff you wanna know before you put anywhere from 50, 50 grand to you know, 500 grand into, into one of these investments, um, you know, entrusting them to, uh, with, with your investment. but. That's where we focus. And, and I would just say like the last thing before I stop my diatribe, Billy, is like, um, you know, the, the reason I'm so passionate on this stuff is because when I was still working full time in tech, I had a very demanding career, right? I mean, I had, you know, the lengthy hours you typically hear about in, in a lot of uh, media and stories and those horror stories of, of tech startups, of people grinding 80 hours plus per week, right? right. And I, I hit a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, I mean, I, I guess I could have kept going, but it wasn't leading toward, towards a financial outcome. And it wasn't leading towards a, lot, a balance of, of life where I could focus on my kids and my wife and be present father. So I originally got into this stuff because I wanted to spend more time with family, you know, and, and, I, and I, I buy into these narratives that you hear about multifamily, like wholeheartedly um, about investing in, in passive um, in these assets that generate passive income so that you can get your dollar further, not dropping money like I used to do significantly into 401k that I won't be able to see for 30 years. And I realized watching my dad's business grow and then eventually crumble when we hit some really hard times when I was growing up, like I, I was involved in his business. I watched him grow that business. I was, and, and then eventually lost my younger brother to cancer, parents got divorced, a bunch of other very hard stuff that happened during this era that we called the dark decade, yada, yada. Um, and I, I took away a lot of those learnings and realized as I apply them in my, my life now, like there's just a better way. And, and I think that not only has that helped 
our financial livelihood for me personally, when we started investing in these types of deals, it incred it's incredibly powerful to get feedback from our investors now saying, I can't believe I didn't know about this stuff. And, and that we're so happy that we found you guys, you know, when they're giving us that feedback. And so um, anyways, I appreciate you bearing with it. You know, I know it was a mouthful, but um, it's, it's motivating to hear feedback from the people that we work with and just seeing the progress in our own kind of wealth journey uh, because the strategy works and, and we love being able to help people get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I love how you, you, you shared your story and, and how it means a lot to you. And you even mentioned it in your, your, your bio, you want to have more time and you realize that this is a vehicle that can get not only you there, but you want to take other people on the ride too. And which is just awesome. But the biggest problem that people have is they don't know if they're not a real estate expert, they don't know what to invest in. They don't know if it's going to be a good vehicle to then get their time freedom, to spend more time with the family. So I think that's super unique and awesome that that's kind of the role you fill where you have the knowledge and you, and a lot of people have that same idea. I want passive income. I like real estate, but they don't know much about it, but where you come in and you actually have that knowledge and you have that experience and you're able to kind of pair those two together is super awesome. The, the, the biggest part um, or one of the biggest parts is the vetting of the sponsors. And that's kind of what we're going to dive into. Yep. So like you said a little bit earlier, you don't want to, you don't want to deal with any scam artists or any, you know, people that aren't reliable, but it definitely goes deeper. I know I heard you mentioned background checks. Can you kind of walk us through your vetting process? Maybe if it's just one sponsor, how long it takes, all the details that goes into how you vet your sponsors. Yeah, happy to. You know, I think this is a topic that we could probably do, you know, even multiple podcasts about, but we don't have that right. kind of time, you know, so I want to make this digestible because if folks are hearing this for the first time and you're like still at that stage where, you know, may maybe you've heard a different podcast, you've read one book, you picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and you're kind of getting the bug early on and you're not quite sure which strategy you want to pick even. Just for context for folks out there, I mean, you know, we used to buy rentals um, and we still have like about six, I think we have six rentals still. <laughs> That's how much I think about it. My wife, um, my, my co-founder manages that portfolio currently. But I mean, th this is not that context. The context for this stuff is actually when you're making um, an informed vetted decision about a commercial real estate sponsor or operator you can also call them the gp or the general partner just a, or the asset manager you know they have all these wonderful confusing names in real estate uh, which almost seem like they're designed just to confuse new investors um, I, I swear uh, but uh, the point of it is that is this you're betting on the jockey more than you are the horse in some cases to use that analogy you're you're, you're betting on the person's um, capabilities and you're betting on that person's competency to do what they have to do to be respectful of your capital and to run this business plan. So that said, uh, we use a five-part framework. I'm a big framework guy. Um, and I literally have it pulled up here in front of me right now, just to, just to make sure that I can reference any specific questions if, you know, if we decide to go there. But um, in the tech world, when you're scaling organizations from the ground up, and I was on the business side, you know, I wasn't on the product, the software side, I was on the business side and operations and, and very process heavy stuff you learn that if you wanna make great decisions, usually you have to take your time, but you don't have time to, to do that in the technology world. I mean, you're, you're, the competition is fierce. You have right. to move very quickly. So how do you make excellent decisions quickly? 
And the way that you do that is with a framework. And in, in real estate, you commonly hear about that in the context or the terminology of, a, um, of your criteria. But it seems like most times people kind of stop there and there isn't a lot of discussion around how do you put that criteria into a framework to actually make it uh, applicable? You know, like how do you, how do you execute on it quickly? So, so we use, you know, so these five kind of buckets of, of, of things that, you know, that I look at. Number one, for vetting a sponsor, you have to look at their track record. Um, so what have they done? And I'll peel back a couple things in the, the specific focus areas for okay. each of you, depending on the timeline, the, the, the depth you want to go into, Bailey. We use track record, number one. Approach is number two. Uh, we use team, number three. Communications, number four. And values, number five. And um, so that, that's kind of it. It's like track record, approach, team, comms, values. Um, and as much as, you know, I didn't come up with these terms, I, 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 all, I, I think everyone out there should follow the advice that I, I heard originally from. I think the first person I heard it say was uh, Brad Smith, the former CEO of Intuit, where I kind of started my career. Um, he would say, be, you know, be a thief of good ideas, right? And, and what he was really saying is not go steal people's ideas. What he's saying is borrow the good ones and then, but don't try to recreate the wheel, right? Um, and so, so track record, just to go into that one briefly, Bailey, and please yeah. cut me off if I just get talking too, too deep down a rabbit hole. A um, couple things matter on this, you know, are they using a, um, a playbook that they're familiar with? Like, have they done this thing before? Have they, have they done this type of, of, is if it's a value add, like we focus on value add projects, but I would say explicitly light value add uh, because so many of the properties that are out there these days, when people say value add, um, what they'll typically mean is like they're, you're buying a distressed asset, you know, like it's something that might be, uh, you know, half occupied or, or less maybe, right. or, or you know, maybe a little more, but it's, it's below 90%, that's for sure. And so they're going to go in and do one of two types of improvement to that property. They're going to either like operationally improve it or, you know, improve it via rehab or construction. So if you're going to go do, uh, you know, a value add strategy or like a light value add with like a repositioning, putting on a new name, signage, trying to pick out a new tenant base, all that kind of stuff then you have to know how to do it. And, and, and you don't really necessarily know how to, how, to, how to do it just because you've done one, you wanna be able to do a couple at least. So, so right. we look at that stuff, like have they done it before? Um, approach, kind of jump down to that for a moment. I, I think uh, when we say approach, what I mean by that is how do they conduct themselves? Because it matters, it, it really does matter. You know, I, I think I, taking lessons from, um, from the corporate world, like, there's all kinds of good lessons that I learned there. And I'm going to call out a couple of examples here. Like when it comes to transparency, um, are, is the sponsor able to, you know, if I ask them like, Hey, do you mind sending me over the analysis or like the, the sales comps or like rental comps, you know, just something that is a very specific, tangible ask. And if they've looked at, you know, if they've looked at that deal, they should have done that, that homework already. And so if they can't, I want them to provide that within, within a matter of 24 hours and, you know, just roughly as a guideline. And if they can't do that, that probably means they're building it real time. And that's not good. (laughs) They they don't have their, their processes in place. Right. Right. And and so that, that's a very tiny example. I I mean, another one would be in their approach, like, um, do they do contingency planning in for, for, for nightmare scenarios, you know, for black swan events? I mean, it couldn't be a better time to talk about that than right now. Um, you know, we're in one. And so, you know, about a year ago, we were all talking about this stuff in the theoretical context. Now we're talking about it very much in a real context because we're living yeah. it. Um, but 
how are those plans going for these sponsors now, right? Like are, are these contingency plans actually being used? Have they had to pull those levers? Um, that kind of stuff. So uh, under each of these, I could probably rattle off, you know, five to eight different questions, but you want me to just keep on going down each of these five buckets? Yeah, keep it going down and I'll circle back to a few ones that we can touch on. Cool. Um, so for the team, oh boy, I, I, I really think that this is a undervetted um, area. Uh, and, and so there, I have a passion point for this one because I see so many of the similar themes from the corporate world when like just working with other teams that might not be functioning correctly from a leadership perspective. And a lot of that stems from, okay, if there's two general partners or, or three, in some cases, three general partners, do they have clearly defined uh, roles? Right. You know, and, and do they get along? I mean, these are things that are super fundamental and basic sounding. So people kind of write them off, which is the, a huge mistake. <laughs> like, you know, so that, I mean, the, the people will go and seem, seemingly invest hours, like a dozen hours, just to go pressure test the cap rate. But then they completely ignore the fact that they didn't catch an argument that they should have They heard like a, a 30 second snippet of a mini argument between two general partners on a phone call or on a webinar. And that's what they should have spent the next hours di digging into asking questions about the sponsor being like, wait a sec, you're about to spend five years on a project with this. Other <laughs> you don't sound like you appreciate each other's company and you guys can't have an honest conversation. That would, I call that a heck of a lot more important than betting a cap rate in terms of sequence and priority order. So um, anyways, I mean, I'm not, not discounting the whole vetting of the deal because that is incredibly critically important. But the, the who, when it comes to passive investing, the who comes before the what and even the where. And I would say in some cases, even the how, you know, so that's why we're talking about this stuff. So you got to know, does that team function correctly? Do they have clear roles or are they stepping on each other's toes? Um, is there tension? Um, and and then, then, then you figure out within the team, who else do they hire? You know, like, like, do they have a property management group if they're using a third party property management company? Um, have they used them before? Uh, or are they doing everything vertically integrated, meaning like they have all their stuff in house? Um, all that stuff, you know, so, so uh, last but not least, you know, we got communications and values. And so those are two separate ones. If you ask a bunch of experienced uh, limited partners, and I mean the folks that have done like, you know, 10 to 20 uh, in individual investments um, ac across many, many different uh, uh, sponsors. When you ask them, why do you stay or keep investing with a given sponsor uh, or, or and why do you go? They'll typically answer very directly and quickly and say, it's the communication. And so when it comes to communication, I mean, you can go out and find cash flow deals. You can go find, you know, if you want more of just straight yield, you can go find like, like development deals, you know, and, and there's tons of deals out there. But do you feel informed and are you getting answers and clarity and action um, and actionable steps when, when you need it, you know? And, and that comes down to some stuff that's basic, like reporting, you know, are you getting good quarterly reporting? Or when stuff goes poorly, are you getting quicker answers than when it's going well? Right. I would, now, I would argue. That was another... Now's another perfect time to test the, to to really see that firsthand if that's if that's coming true. Nail it. Yeah, I mean, it's talk about like proactive communication uh, in times of hardship is is a really good litmus test because if they speed up the frequency of their updates, if the sponsor speed up speeds up the frequency, that's something they usually do quarterly. It, but they they without you asking, without a single investor asking, 
they switch to monthly or even down to weekly. Some sponsors we've worked with actually have switched to weekly updates when COVID first hit because they knew there was going to be a lot of unease. Um, and, and, and frankly, pe people deserve that kind of, that kind of frequency of communication. So communication matters a lot, you know, and it is holistic, by the way, it, it, it doesn't just mean, um, how do you send a MailChimp or an active campaign email drop on a regular basis? What that means is, are you available for phone calls? Um, is texting something that you're able to do and be open to doing? Or are you super rigid about it? You know, all, all because people are all over all devices now. I mean, you can't yeah. just rigidly stay on an email structure. Um, you know, do you have an investor platform? Uh, like, like, oh, sorry, a, a portal? Can they log into a portal? Um, all those different things. And man, last but not least, um, values. And here's where I would say, you know, I, I, I don't want to condemn a broad swath of people out there by any means, because that's not the point. I think it's unfortunate that so many folks in the real estate business seem to think that the values vetting stuff is, is squishy. Because like, to me, it couldn't be more concrete. Right. And what I mean, I mean, like, what I mean by that is, like literally sitting um, on a phone call with a sponsor. Now, now this is like almost a year ago, I think. Um, and this is a real story. Like I was talking to a potential sponsor that we wanted to work with on our platform. And I've asked the same question of multiple sponsors at this point. And they wanted to work with us and we wanted to work with them. Everything else was looking good. Um, but I asked them like, you know, like what's your philosophy on tenant relations? about? And, and they are an apartment sponsor, like multifamily sponsor. And, and they came back and just said, you know, I, I don't really like, I, I don't really work on this stuff that much. I'm more of a numbers guy. And we were done. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's not, and like, I still talk to this person, I would argue that we're friends and, and it's just a matter of alignment, you know, because now more than ever, you better believe you're, you're seeing what happens with the sponsors out there who are more uh, tenant friendly, tenant focused, willing to compromise, willing to to collaborate on solutions like not only do we want to work in, with the sponsors who are uh who, who are people centric it's good business right <laughs> so uh I, I think that that's kind of the last comment but thanks for indulging me while i go through like 10 yeah. to 15 minutes <laughs> of raw vetting criteria man <laughs> no worries I, I have some i have some follow-ups for you and something real quick on what you just said with that story you're talking to him and he said i'm a numbers guy just to clarify i know that in, in deals, there's multiple partners. So is it, you know, in your, in your eyes that you partner with, is it, is it good if one person may be numbers focused and they're just the analytical person, but they have another person on their team who is, who's more in charge of the asset management, who has the same values aligned with you in that sense? Or do you think that everyone needs to be on board? Super. I mean, that, that's a very surgical follow-up question. So I appreciate it, man. And so to clarify, earlier we talked about team and the importance of having team roles and responsibilities that are clearly carved out. You know, you have one person, to your point, Bailey, who's like the numbers guy, one person who's kind of the, maybe, maybe there's more like the executive leader who's doing the big picture stuff or investor relations stuff. Um, the, the story I gave you specifically about like kind of missing the mark on values was actually yeah. coming from a person who, uh, who, who was kind of in that, in the strategic leadership role um, okay. and and so I, what they were what we were talking about and what they were commenting on was less about um their side of the partnership and more just speaking on behalf of their entire sponsorship team saying like basically the message came across as that's just not a priority to us right okay yeah that's a good question yeah i appreciate you clarifying that so i know you talked about the team that's huge 
And I think I'm going to, I think I know your answer to this, but I want to ask it, hear what you say. And this will be big for the listeners as well. The sponsor or the deal, if you had to pick one that was more important, Hmm. if you were to vet one or the other, would you, would it be more important to have a solid, solid sponsorship team or a solid deal? Yeah. I I mean, you're going to know you had this one off the past, but I mean, if you're a passive investor, it really comes down to, to the sponsor first and the deal second. And, but you, I mean, before you pull the trigger, ideally you're going to have alignment on three, on all three, you're going to have the market, the operator and the deal. Um, I think that there are great sponsors out there that are excellent asset managers and operators who can take a deal that is just okay and turn it into something that's, that's great. Right. Uh, through operations. Um, but on, but on vice versa, I mean, the other day I was, I was, um, educating like a newer investor that, that works with us and they were really stuck on one particular market. And I, you know, we're through, through the course of discussion, I was like asking them, so like, what makes you excited about this market? Um, and, and like, what do you think, you know, they basically showed me a deal and I was like, wow, great market. Um, but what's like the background of the sponsor and, and they couldn't really show me like a lot of really good, uh, evidence that there was like a meaningful track record for the sponsor right. rel- rel- relatively new sponsor and, and there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with that either like it's it's okay to have like you know <laughs> of all the folks out there i just got to go down this tangent briefly bailey like of all the <laughs> folks out there who who claim they will only ever trust or mm-hmm. give credibility to three cycle sponsors right or like two cycle sponsors and, and what that means for the listeners that are newer on on this stuff is like people who have been through um, a cycle, a real estate cycle, meaning like a full down market, right? And so some people are dogmatic about that. And and they will say, you have to go through one to two to three, like literally some people say three full cycles. And I'm like, cool. So you're basically weeding out like the, the age demographics alone just cut, cut out like the vast majority of people that are out there. And by the way, right. there's a bell curve distribution to effectiveness there, by the way. So like, it just means that once people, people lose energy and hunger once they get theirs, right? So like, let's yeah, stay yeah. focused on how many people are actually out there hungry to still do great work. So we can have that discussion all day. But um, all that said, yeah, I, I think that betting the sponsor matters um, immensely more. If you are the sponsor, you know, I mean, I, there's thousands of incredible up and coming hungry sponsors, you know, and, and who want to be owner operators um, uh, of, of their of their apartment communities and, and, and their commercial facilities. And like, I think that they should hopefully also understand, like, when they are being vetted, um, you better believe they better have a great deal. Right. right? And like, like if, if they're trying to bring a deal forward, it's got to be a great deal. It's got to be in a sound market. For sure. And then the last thing I want to touch on, I know we can talk about the the the, the framework all day long. But one thing I also I wanted to touch on was you talked about third-party property management. So I wanted to kind of hear your take on it, how you mm-hmm. look at it, and then how other investors, passive investors should look at it as well, you know, from vetting them as, as much as the sponsor, kind of how, how, do, how do you look at the third-party management? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I think it comes down to any... Originally, like the way I thought about this when I first got into commercial real estate coming from the corporate world um, in residential, it's like, it's a third party relationship. So it's almost like it's just vendor management. You know, in the corporate world, you think about this from a vendor management perspective. So what, what's the ultimate determinant of effectiveness in a playbook? Because that property, that third party property, property manager is part of this sponsor's playbook, 
right? Right. And I sometimes I hate that term because it's just so, you know, corporate-y and buzzwordy. But like, and it's like, what does it really mean? But what I'm basically saying here is the holistic approach to how they do things. And if they know how to manage that well, and the track record speaks well to how they've done with this property management uh, company, like, are there other deals hitting performa on or above? So that's the ultimate determinant. And, and then of course, uh, as evident, you know, tenant retention and, uh, you know, basically getting, fetching rent premiums that are planned in the pro forma, like all, all these things are validation that they know what to, that they know what they're doing with their management of a, of a, a third-party property manager. Because I've actually seen some integrated, uh, some vertically integrated, uh, you know, companies that are doing killer work. But I, I, you, if you're looking at the performance of their track records, you cannot tell the difference between, if you look at their track records, like this company is vertically integrated on one side, this company is a third-party property management. I mean, within their holistic company structure, I'm sure you could make an argument that the vertical integration one is going to be more cost-effective. Right. Um, so that, that 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 would probably be the um, the ultimate determinant. But from an individual investor perspective, doesn't really impact it. Uh, assuming that the sponsor knows knows how to manage that relationship. Now, it's the if it's the first deal that the sponsor has ever used the the third party manager, that's that's when I will look closer. Um, right. And and. We actually haven't. I don't. I don't think we've actually done a deal like that, um, where, where it's a first-time uh, property manager. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. And then to kind of close things off, a few more questions. The red flags. I know you mentioned the values. That was like an immediate. You know, we're not on the same page. Mm-hmm. End of our. You know, going forward on on this deal, or maybe forever. I don't want to say forever, but in in the short term. The values weren't aligned, kind of game's over for that one. Mm-hmm. Is there any other huge red flags, either from your experience or things that you look out for that you that you'd like to share? Sure. Uh, number one for me would be unwillingness to share failure. And what I mean by that is there's a question and I think you've probably heard me mention this before Bailey on prior discussion, but like the number one thing um, under track record that I look at after uh, their actual project performance historically is like, how do they address prior misses? And and I call that failure response just to give it something brandable. Uh, (laughs) But uh, failure response is just simply saying, I want to understand if this person is like, let's say that they're an experienced sponsor can they tell me about a specific time that they have been through a brutally hard management challenge? And right. what was it? Uh, how'd they get through it? Um, and, and what did they learn from it? And for those of you that might be listening, you come from a, a, a experienced interviewing perspective within the corporate world, you might, this might sound familiar because it's based on behavioral interviewing or experiential interviewing uh, in that world. Cause I just, I've done more of that than, than I care to recall. Um, but yeah, it, it, you're basically trying to gauge if someone is holding your, your capital and they're putting it to use in a deal, are they going to freak out when hardship comes and lose all their cool, lose their temperament? Or are they going to kind of hold that figurative steering wheel of the ship steady and be able to weather that hardship because they've been through comparable events? Right. And so that for an experienced sponsor shouldn't be a hard thing to pull up. Um, if, if, now, if they're new, 
I, I absolutely will accept within it within one GP team if there's like two or three GPs like yeah. and one one of them is is uh, as inexperienced like let's say in, in real estate but they're an entrepreneur I guarantee they've been through something brutal <laughs> like yeah. it's it's got to happen and so my flag goes up immediately when someone is unwilling to share any misses because there's no human on the planet that is perfect therefore. Um, it just speaks volumes about a number of other things. If they are so insecure that they're not willing to share something they messed up. <laughs> right, right. That, that, that's a great point. So before we move on to our big four, is there any last things? I know we could talk about vetting sponsors for hours and hours and hours, but is there any last things you want to you wanna leave about vetting sponsors? Yeah, you know, I probably just want to directly answer the question you asked earlier, Bailey, which is like, like how long does this whole thing take? Like when we're doing it realistically in our business, right? Because although I have this like nice sounding framework, it, it, in reality, if I hit someone with a framework and 70 questions as if on one phone call, they're going <laughs> to run away faster than you can possibly imagine. Yeah. So, so in reality, we're talking about humans getting to know humans and, and building trust and trusting but verifying, right? So I would say roughly the process takes three to six months. Uh, you know, example would be, you know, we're currently working with this incredible storage sponsor. Um, you know, we're just finishing up another deal with them right now. Um, hope to have another one coming relatively soon. Uh, and the very popular ones, by the way, that these investors seem to like a lot. So like, got to know them back in January, tour their offices in Texas, where we've done a lot of deals. Took months just over time getting to know them via phone calls. Uh, invested our own money in their deal, which is part of our concrete process like gotcha. this is something this is something that you don't hear about everyone out there likes to say they quote unquote bet whether they're sponsors or they're co-sponsors and so this is something i want to hit on hard because i i'm, I'm calling it out a bit i I, th I think that there's a number of people out there that say they bet i know they don't so what we, we, and we and we do we invest our own money in a deal we put someone through an investigative background check then and only then will we then start to share uh, their opportunities when they come to us? And we don't send all of them because we vet the deal down to every deal process. So um, we have a third party analyst who's got 30 years of experience. She looks at the deal. I look at the deal. If we're both yeses, then it goes over to our broker dealer because I'm also a registered securities agent. So of course we have to do everything not only by the book, but I'm legally required to do everything by the book and be fully transparent and disclosed across everything we do. You know, So like, that's how we vet a deal. Um, and, and so when we say that, we actually mean it. Um, and we, we, we really pride ourselves on walking the walk there. Yeah. Wow. That, that's awesome. Great to hear kind of your transparency. You, you know, you put your, yourself out there first, you, 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 you battle, you, you see what's going on. And then only if the, you know, if it's clear, you'll bring in, you'll bring in people because you're the, you're the trusted, what, what, what was the term you used? You're, you have a fiduciary. Yeah. Yeah. Co-sponsor, of course. Okay, so we're now going to move on to our big four, where we ask all of our guests the same four questions. So Spencer, number one, what's your number one habit for success? This is a weird one. Um, I really have a keystone habit that I've had for years now. Of I, do, I run, you know, I run three to four times a week. Um, I'm not the fastest guy, <laughs> um, but, but it's more about the habit. And the reason I bring this up is because not only is physical fitness and stuff important, I'm actually not a health nut. You should see how many Oreos that I ate last night. Um, but the, the point is I go out, I do that. It clears the mind, helps the body. And also I'm listening usually to educational content. So like it's a mindset thing 
in addition to an educational thing. So like, that's what you call a keystone habit. Um, I forget which book brought that up. Um, I want to give it credit, but I can't right now. And so that's my keystone habit is, is I run and it helps not only center me, clear my head, gives me thinking time, but I like, I learn and digest audiobooks at a crazy good pace because it just happens to be baked into running, running a 10 K a few times a week. Wow. Awesome. I have, I've not heard that habit for success yet. So that's unique and awesome. Thanks, so man. number, t- number two, limiting beliefs are thoughts in our heads that hold us back from realizing our potential. What is one limiting belief that you were able to crush and how did that impact your life? Limiting belief that I held for years and I still have, uh, candidly, I have quite a bit of insecurity about it, uh, is uh, that I'm not creative. Um, and I think that it is such a silly thing. Um, you know, I, I think that inherently human beings are, we're all wired to be creative creatures, right? And, and yeah. so I just thought I wasn't because I was benchmarking against other people in a totally self, you know, self-destructive way. And so like, turns out, yeah, I'm actually pretty creative. Sometimes it leads to an awful dad joke, but you know, I mean, I think that that's, that's just par for the course. So I think, uh, yeah, that, that, that's gotta be it. Awesome. And number three, what advice, I know you gave a ton of advice already, but what's another piece of advice you'd give to someone who is looking to invest actively or passively in real estate for their first time? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> hands down, it has to be. Make sure you slow down when it comes to picking your strategy. And it's remarkable to me how commonly, the, 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 unfortunately, the, the, this afflicts people. And, and, what, and what I mean, and I, and I get why. What I mean by that, Bailey, is like, it's so tempting to want to go out and you listen to a bunch of great podcasts just like yours. And, you know, the, the, there's so much education out there that you, you get excited, you get the bug. Right. But purely based on the podcast you heard first or the forum you read on Bigger Pockets, or the person you met in a meetup, you get the bug on one strategy or niche and you go running hardcore based on taking that quote unquote massive action. And if you had gone to the wrong one, like let's say you read a book on flipping. A year later, you wake up, you're in the middle of a flip. It isn't working the way you wanted to. It turns out you don't like it. And you're trying to fit this in on nights and weekends in addition to your day job. I think you picked the wrong strategy. So I'm not, man, I'm not ripping on flipping, by the way. I worked at, a, at the biggest fix and flip lender in the country right before I, I quit to go full-time real estate investing. So like it has its place. I'm just using that as an example to say, people say, I want to go be a sponsor in multifamily. It's like, well, why do you, why do you think that? Well, it's because I heard a really good podcast and then I read a bunch of books. Be like, cool. Didn't answer the question. What are your goals and why are you picking that strategy to, and how does it support your goals? So I don't want to necessarily build an empire as an example at Bailey. Like there's and more power to, to the people out there that want to build empires. Like I'm yeah. not an empire builder guy. I'm the anti-empire guy. I'm the guy who wants to go and be a great father, great husband, and um, have full financial and, and geographical autonomy for years to come while also helping people financially along the way. That's my why. And so um, I would just challenge people to slow the heck down when they're picking a strategy and not running full force down a dark hallway not knowing that they, they, they should probably focus on finding the flashlight first. Yeah, that, that, that is such an important piece of advice because there are so many different aspects of real estate and me kind of, when I, you know, learning, I'm still learning about a bunch of different asset classes, but in the early, early stages, there are so many shiny objects to, to run to. And what, what kind of what you said, 
and each each different strategy has their own type of i guess persona or goal behind it of why you'd want to do it so for example like you said fix and flip if you're looking for a long-term hold don't do like fix and flips probably not your not your thing so just because it, it looks fun and maybe you like to it you like you said you have to match your goals with the strategy because that's the the stra- the the type of real estate you invest in and the strategy you go with is what what you need to align your goals with so i can't emphasize what you said enough totally and the last question what is your favorite real estate business or personal development related book oh my gosh such a hard question um <laughs> it's just so so challenging to narrow it down to one i mean yeah i read uh at the previous number I was quoting that I read in my original ramp up on commercial real estate was I read 24 books that was actually undercounted I found out so uh, there was actually more than that but I didn't need to read all those um, there, there's a few really killer ones you could find in there the number one book is not necessarily one that is like sure if I were to answer that question very directly I'd say rich dad poor dad because it's the most fundamental book that put that pushed me on this entire path so like I want to use that as a gimme and then give you a different book but so many people answer that question that way um, the, the second most impactful one, particularly because I was working full-time when I started this journey is essentialism. Um, essentialism is, I've read it three times now. It is the book that helps you really understand how to say no for stuff that is not within your key top priority list and helps you understand how everyone has the same 24 hours in a day. And there's nothing different between you and Bill Gates and Oprah and all these folks, like, except for the fact that they are pretty ruthless with their time. And, you, you know, they, I, I would just encourage people to go check that out because everyone tries to solve the notion of getting more work done um, with very fancy, uh, you know, programs, playbooks, pieces of software. Ultimately, you just have to say no more often. <laughs> like right. that's, that's ultimately what it comes down to. And like, it doesn't feel good to, to say no to friends and family and, um, and, and colleagues and stuff to in service of your, your top priorities. But that book you actually literally t- gives you tools as to how to say no. So it's, um, it's just killer, man. I really recommend that book. Awesome. Essentialism. I'll have to definitely check that one out. Yes. By Greg cool. McEwen. Okay. Awesome. Well, and also Spencer, where can the listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, it's, uh, we have a website and um, I'm also super active on LinkedIn. So the website is madisoninvesting.com. Um, if anyone wants to uh, just you know, join our, our passive investing program, it is, you know, it's, it's a free uh, program, but you do have to get an actual real life phone call with me. So you know, to, you don't be intimidated. We usually get really good feedback about that. Um, and then you can join our mailing list and, so, and, and see the opportunities we share. We are only accepting accredited investors these days. So I have to put that out there to folks. Um, if, if they want to connect via LinkedIn, as you know, Bailey, I'm on there literally every day. Um, yeah. So uh, you won't really find me on Facebook and other places, but LinkedIn, I'm super active. So please do reach out on LinkedIn. Happy to connect and you know, chat. Cool. Awesome. Well, Spencer, it was a pleasure having you on today. Really appreciate you diving deep, telling us all your dark secrets, no, all, all, your, all your processes, your frameworks. Really appreciate it. And I know I gained a ton of value out of it. And I know the listeners are too. So thank you again, Spencer. Yeah, I, I really cherish our discussions, Bailey. And so thanks so much for having me on. It's a real honor. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast. For more resources or to connect with us further, please visit our website, www.baileykramer.com. We'll see you next time.